From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Another week, another national championship for the Gator program as men's track and field continued their dominance by going back-to-back at the NCAA Outdoor Championships. Meanwhile, baseball is in pursuit of their first national title at the College World Series beginning this weekend after slogging their way through a drenched Super Regional against Wake Forest. Today we'll cover both of these headlines in depth by talking to the voice of the Gators' Mick Hubert and track and field head coach Mike Holloway. First up, let's hear from The Voice, who was there for every pitch and raindrop over the course of a wild weekend at the MAC. We began our chat by discussing what a tough road it proved to be for the Gators to return to Omaha. Well, Adam, it really was a, a challenging weekend. When you're dealing with the NCAA tournament in Gainesville in June, you know you're going to have weather. So you just prepare for that mentally. I think the players... Uh, know that all the fans know it we all know it we, we hope that we can play a game from start to finish and when we get to do that every once in a while we, we know we've been extremely lucky to get that done now this past weekend we had almost 10 hours of rain delays mm-hmm. and that really affects uh the psyche of, of the ball players but really it affects your pitchers more than anything else and i think when you look at it this past weekend against wake forest the strength of the demon deacons was power in hitting well, you can pretty much do that in any kind of weather, rainy weather. But the strength of the Gator team has been pitching. Well, you know, when you warm your pitcher up and he pitches and you shut him down, you warm him up, you can only do that so many times. So, you know, you look at it and say, you know what? The weather was the same for both teams. It was fair for both teams. That would be true. But the weather affected Florida's strength much more than it affected Wake Forest's strength. So I think for what Sully did and the staff and, and piecing it together with pitchers, and you need guys to step up, and they certainly had that. You know, and, and Tyler Dyson, for example, coming on and throwing five innings as he did in the championship game, and then after pitching uh, a couple of innings in the earlier game that day, that's storybook stuff. You have to have those kinds of players answering the bell like that to get it done I mean when you look at the three games you know Alex Fayette only pitched six innings so that's like mm-hmm. a, a six inning start but it wasn't just over one appearance it was over two games and and I think Brady Singer had about six innings so uh, those two guys only threw 12 innings out of the 31 and yet they managed to piece it together and got a few timely hits their defense has always been stellar and so here they are I mean uh, This is a team that's found ways to win, and uh, it's really gratifying, I'm sure, for for this group to to get to Omaha in three years in a row, and that ties the school record. Uh, They did it in 10, 11, and 12, and now here they are again in 15, 16, and 17, which makes it six times in the last eight years. So it's been quite a remarkable run uh, for the Gators under Kevin O'Sullivan. For people that weren't there this weekend and were trying to watch on TV or follow online, can you just give some perspective on how much water there was? Because some of those pictures, I know they were calling it Lake McKeithen. I mean, it didn't even look like that field was going to be playable for days, let alone the hours they were able to get it ready to go. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Todd Campbell, the groundskeeper and his crew, they did a remarkable job. And we, and we must have had a couple of dozen people. I don't want to short anybody. We may have been more than that. There was an abundance of people helping you know, to pull that tarp and squeegee that water and just prepare that field and 
you know, Todd, he is, he's the sod doctor. That guy knows how to take care of that field. That's probably the, the single greatest thing when you look at the McKeithen Stadium complex is it's playing surface. It's as fine as any place anywhere. And and there was there were times when you would look out from the press box and you literally would see almost ripples of water. I mean, it probably was four or five inches deep. There wow. were tremendous lakes, but it drained so very well. I mean, w- when it was raining, it was piling up. But once it stopped or even slowed down, within about 15, 20 minutes, you'd look out there and the water was not visible. Now, I will say this. After the end of the third game, I went down onto the field when they clenched the trip to Omaha. And I was out there and literally water was up you know, a half inch, an inch on my shoes. Wow. And this was after the game and, and then they, they'd been play, they played the game for the previous hmm. three hours. So it was soggy, but it wasn't hazardous. You know, it was wet and it was slippery, but, but they weren't tiptoeing through puddles and the infield didn't have lakes in it and any, hmm. nothing like that. It looked like a perfectly normal playing field, although it was very saturated. Many people have looked at this team as maybe Sully's most impressive coaching job, given the makeup of the roster. From what you've seen, where does this group stack up with other recent teams? Well, I certainly would say that. These players, they've been much maligned. I mean, they went 0-3 to start their first weekend in the SEC, losing all three, being swept at Auburn. A lot of people kind of wrote them off. So they've kind of made it the hard road to hoe all season long, but that's kind of how they flourished. That's what's interesting about this group is the fact that as they go to Omaha, hey, they got just as good a chance to win there as anybody. And they've got just as good a chance to win there as any previous Florida team that's gone there. When you get to that eight, you're in it. You're Mm -hmm. right there. And yeah, they could go in two, but yeah, they could play in the national finals because we've taken probably more talented teams with better offense and they haven't gotten it done. And lo and behold, this is a type of a group that may just have that cohesiveness, that intangible factor that they have had their backs to the wall so many times. They lead the nation with 18 one-run victories, so they don't panic. They, they know they, they're going to be in tight games. And, and like I say, they have found a way. They don't rip the cover off the ball, but they have found a way to average five-and-a-half runs a game. And when you run out, uh, Fiedo and Singer and Jackson Coar and you got a Michael Burns setting a school record with 16 saves on the back end. And now I'm sure they've got elevated confidence in a player like Tyler Dyson. Uh, you go back to two weeks ago in the regional, and Austin Langworthy comes in from left field and, yeah. and throws three innings and hits a game-winning three-run home run. That's kind of Brad Wilkerson-type stuff to come in and do that. So you have to have players step up. So I think they've got the pitching numbers. They've got the great defense and they've got guys who have uh, Omaha experience, and, and you can't really replace that. So I think this team has an excellent chance, and maybe because it has less pressure on it. You know, the other teams that were really had future big leaguers on it, they, they played with a big burden on their back. They mm-hmm. were expected to win it. I mean, you know, we've been there before as the number one seed uh, last year and, and before that. And so now we are the second highest team that made it. We were the number three seed, but – the two seed North Carolina bowed out early. So it's Oregon state number one. And they clearly look like the best team in the field. They only got like four or five losses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they played a pretty competitive schedule in the pac 12. So you've got them. And then this next highest ranked seeded team is Florida at number three. And yet, uh, I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, this isn't one of our better teams, but yet here they are 
<laughs> going out there with 47 victories. Wow. And uh, if they can somehow win three, they're going to be at 50. And that would be the third consecutive year, not only going to Omaha, but the third consecutive year to win 50 games. So you know, like Sully said the other night, he said, I keep hearing about what this team can't do, but what it's done has won 47 games. And so uh, it's it's been an exciting, fun year this season. You just touched on a few of the things that have maybe plagued the teams in years past once they got to Omaha. But mixing those factors in, what do you think the keys are? How do you be successful in Omaha? Because, you know, Florida hasn't gotten over the hump the last few years. What could make this year different? I think the number one thing is you have to bring a healthy team in there physically, and you also have to get lucky. Having said that, those are kind of intangible factors. The tangible factors are you can't strike out a lot. you got to put the ball in play. You can't have a big, loopy swing because you're not going to really win the games via a lot of home runs. And if Wake Forest had found a way to beat Florida in game three and, and go there and bring their 106 home runs to that ballpark, it would have been very interesting to see if they could have generated offense because we've had – Big hitting teams, big sure. home run hitting teams. Of the Gators go out there, and there's a lot of warning track fly balls. The way the ballpark is constructed, it's big, and the right field faces due south. And in that part of the Midwest, you're getting a lot of southerly wind, and so the wind is blowing in from right field most of the time. It is very, very rare that the wind is out of the uh, northwest, which would blow it out mm. to center field. That just doesn't happen. So you've got a big ballpark with a high fence and wind blowing in. So if you're based on power, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to have a lot of holes in your swings, and you can get pitched to. And that's the other thing that's key. You have to have very solid starting pitching. If you've got good pitching and play good defense, you've got a chance. And you've got to put the ball in play. You've got to use the gaps. Mm -hmm. You've got to have singles. You've got to have a little speed. You've got to have a little ability to play a little small ball hit and run, steal a base here and there. you got to move runners along. It's a different game. Most of the teams that are going there aren't playing in their home parks this size. So you have to be able to do that, and this team has probably done that better than many of the others that Florida's had. If you hit and run, a little small ball here and there, they've had to manufacture some runs because they have the lack of power. Uh, having said that, if you square up a ball and you hit it solid, it's going to go out but you just don't get any cheap home runs in that ballpark. And you have to be able to learn how to score without getting the long ball. Wake Forest, for example, in the Super Regional, never scored one single run that didn't come via the home run. And so uh, I'm glad the Gators are there. But if Wake Forest would have gone, they could have had a frustrating stay out there if they were dependent on the big fly. What's amazing, too, because that was what Rosenblatt was all about. It was a bandbox. I mean, you had routine pop-ups there that would sail into the stands. So how much has the World Series changed from what you've seen going from Rosenblatt now to, to TD Ameritrade? Totally changed. And, and, and the Gators, and myself in particular, have been, been very blessed because I called uh, the Gators there in Omaha in 2010 at, at, at Rosenblatt and then went back in 2011 at the new ballpark in TD Ameritrade. So the Gators are the only team that could do that, that closed down the old yard, opened the new yard, and that's really special. The old ballpark, Johnny Rosenblatt Stadium, sat kind of up on a hill. The dimensions were very favorable. It wasn't cheap. It was like 330 down the lines and 400 to center and about 370 to the gaps. But left field was due north. So that southerly wind was always blowing out to left. If you had a southwesterly wind, which you get a lot, 
in Omaha, that's blowing straight out to center field. So you always generally had a prevailing wind. Plus that ball, like I said, that ballpark sitting up on that hill like that with that wind blowing, it was a hitter's haven. And, it, and with it totally, those bats. <laughs> yeah, and with the bats. The, the back in the day when they had what they called the minus five bats, you could have a 35-inch bat weighing only 30 ounces. You could have a five differential. You don't do that anymore. The bats aren't like that. But back in the day, back in the 90s, in fact, in 1998, the national championship final score was 21-14. Oh, wow. That's not, that's not a football game. That's not a <laughs> slow-pitch softball game. That's a 21-14. And they realize, hey, this is not what we want. Right. And then they changed some of the you know, equipment to the game. And then they got too far the other way in the ditch. And then they had a bunch of one-run game, two-to-one, three-to-two, one-to-nothing. And that was a little boy. I think what they've got now, they've got a nice blend where, again, if you square up a ball with this equipment, you're rewarded for it but you're not going to get the aluminum uh, check swing mm-hmm. wind blowing out. Oh, home run. <laughs> that doesn't happen. So uh, it, I think it's much more fair, uh, but it is totally different. I'm, I've been, again, so blessed to be able to see the games played in these two ballparks. And, you know, Adam, I came in 1989 uh, and the Gators first trip out there was 1988 under Joe Arnold. So I missed those three games. The Gators went one and two. But I have seen every other World Series game since 91 when they made their second visit. We played 35 games in Omaha. I've, I've been fortunate enough to broadcast 32 of them and, and make uh, you know nine of the ten trips. And now this one coming up here this weekend will be my tenth trip to Omaha. And, and every time I get there, I always uh, realize you may not come back. Mm-hmm. You just never You can't take it for granted. Now, with Sully. In his 10th year here, no program has been to Omaha more in the 10 years than Florida. And the second most is the Gator opponent Sunday night, TCU. They're going to mm-hmm. be there five times, and this is their fourth straight trip there. So it's a great marquee matchup of the two games Saturday and the two games Sunday, the Florida TCU game, which is the fourth one to be played in the opening round. It's the only one this year that features two of the seeded teams and three straight years for Florida, four straight years for TCU. So it's a great matchup. And, uh, again, you never know if you're going to get back there again. So that's why you always enjoy it when you're there. It's, it's quite an event. And, uh, like I say, who knows when, when it's going to be your last time to do it. Given all the events that you've covered, and, and you've, you've done national championships, you've been to some of the greatest venues we have in the country, what makes the College World Series special in your mind? Why is it such a unique event, and why do you look forward to going back to Omaha? Well, I mean, you, you take a look, for example, at, at basketball, March Madness, and the specials that run over three weeks, and you, and you get down to the last weekend, you got the final four. And so there's four teams. Well, here there's eight teams, and uh, you, they're not playing in a dome with, with 50 or 60,000 people, although I do think it would be interesting someday. Now, it'll never – you should never say never, but I don't see the – I don't see the future – where this game is coming out of Omaha. It's been there since Johnny Rosenblatt Stadium opened in like 1950. So uh, wow. there's been a lot of team, a lot of a lot of places trying to wrestle it away. But Omaha is is a unique venue. It's a great town. They love this. They support this. Uh, but it would be neat to see this game played in a dome stadium, Major League Dome Stadium. Well, they probably would have. 50,000, 60,000 people at those games like you would do at the Final Four. So you don't have the size of the venue like you at the Final Four, but you got double the number of teams. And since it's double elimination, everybody's going to get their two shots. So for that first week where they're playing two games a day, I mean, it's great. I mean, it it is just a festival 
of baseball lovers. And there's so much stuff going on around the ballpark, fan-friendly booths and all that stuff. It's just really, obviously, people go, and they go on their so-called off day. They go when their team's not even playing. Right. They, they get the tickets. And, and they built this ballpark now to seat about 24,000. And there's twenty to 24,000 people every, every game, whether it's uh, Monday at 1 o'clock or, or Saturday night at 8 o'clock. They're going to show up. So and the weather's usually good. It, it, uh, one year we arrived, uh, the weather was uh, sunny and 73 degrees, low humidity and cool. And within four or five days, it was 98 degrees. And the sun was beating down on you. And it was like you were in a desert. I mean, so <laughs> you, you get all kinds of weather extremes and you will be there probably during a tornado watch, if not a warning, or we've even been there when a tornado has come through Omaha. Oh, so you, you've got some volatility in the weather a little bit, but by and large, the rain doesn't really affect the scheduling too much. And downtown Omaha has been revitalized over the years. There's plenty of hotels, and restaurants, and you can really get around easily. And so it, it's just fan friendly. And that's what makes it so special. You've talked about all the years that you've been doing World Series games for Florida, and if you go before Sully, I guess it's the, the BS era before Sully, only five trips in history. Florida was not that successful as a baseball program, but now you've got six of the last eight years Florida has been at the World Series under Kevin O'Sullivan. How has he taken this program to another level? Here's the thing. He's got such a great continuity in his coaching staff. I mean, when you look at Brad Weitzel and, and, and Craig Bell, They've been with him since the outset, and they were they were friends before they came together as a coaching staff. So they had professional baseball scouting experience backgrounds. So they were well in tuned with the amateur players in the state. And so they've maintained those relationships. And then even Lars Davis, their graduate assistant, I think is like in his third, maybe fourth year here. So the coaching staff continuity is number one, the ability to recruit a fertile ground like Florida and, and then course bring in some other players you look like last year you brought in a, a pitcher from minnesota and logan shore and aj puck from iowa you know so you do recruit uh, somewhat on a national level but you can stock it up really well mm-hmm. right here in the sunshine state and they've got great recruiting like that and uh, and brad white so i i compare him to the don zimmer of baseball i mean he's, he's <laughs> the, the quintessential uh baseball guy he's great bench coach for sully and uh, he's got he's got a wealth of baseball knowledge. His whole life has been involved with baseball. So uh, that's a guy that Sully can rely on as an older coach. And yet, you know, Sully gets out there and recruits and Craig Bell and, and Brad. And, and it's tough in college baseball because, you you know, you want to sign the best. But, you know, when you sign the best, now you got to deal with the draft. Sure. And those kids may not show up in August. So you're always kind of got your heart in your throat a little bit this time of the year. And think about that. Can you imagine having the NBA draft during the final four? No, I mean, it's, that's it's, what yeah, goes it's on really right strange. <laughs> Alex Fiedo on Monday night is out there closing out the game an hour earlier. He's picked 18th overall in the first round by the Detroit Tigers. So the things you have to deal with, oh, and by the way, you've got 11.7 scholarships to divvy up from your 25, 28, 29 players. Coaching baseball, college baseball, I don't know anything any more challenging than that. I mean, you know, it's not the vault. It's not the bank in terms of what college football means dollar wise. But for what you have to do, what you have to do it with under the circumstances you're dealt, it's a difficult job. It's tough. And uh, you know, I, I tip my hat to the baseball coaches and, and what Joe Arnold had to do and get, getting it going. I mean, Jay Bergman before that here in Florida never got the Gators to the World Series, but was instrumental in, in the program. And, uh, you know, it's it just been a lot of coaches. And of course, you can't forget about Dave Fuller and, you know, the all-time great. 
but then after Joe took us to Omaha in 88, 91, Andy Lopez came in, took us in 96, 98. He had the program rolling. And then Pat McMahon took us to Omaha. We played Texas for the national championship finals mm-hmm. in 2005. And then, of course, Sully has played for the national finals also against South Carolina. So we've had some great coaches come through here. But obviously what Sully has done is just unprecedented in his career. It's such a long season, and over the course of that, so many different stories can germinate and and come to light. What, in your mind, are the standout stories from this year's team in particular? Well, I I think uh, this group came in with uh, a burden and expectations and yet a fire and a hunger all at the same time because last year, they didn't expect to go 0-2. They lost a pair of one-run games. They lost to a team that people scratched their head and said, how can you lose to Coastal Carolina? Right. You should. Ne- Florida should never lose to Coastal Carolina. And then those same people had to go. Oh my gosh, Coastal Carolina came out of the losers bracket and won the College World Series. <laughs> they just won the whole thing. They won the whole thing. So that's the other interesting thing that when you go two and zero in the Gator case, for example, they play Sunday, they win. They play Tuesday, they win. They don't play again till Friday. So you can put your game three pitcher going on Friday. Now, if you win Friday. You're done. You don't play again until the championship series starts on Monday. Now you can recreate your starting staff all over again, mm-hmm. run those th- same three starters out there again, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday if necessary. So that's the easiest road to hoe in terms of uh, your pitching staff. It- it's difficult to do. But in the case last year, the Gators lose two one-run games they come home. Coastal Carolina beats Florida in game one. They lose game two. They're now in a loser's bracket game, and they had to win the Thursday game. They did. They then we played Friday. They had to win. They did. They now had to beat that same team again twice, beat them Saturday. They did. And mm-hmm. then they won two out of three the next week. So Coastal Carolina came out of the loser's bracket and won the national championship. So even that's possible. And you don't have to go back a long time to find out, well, when, when did that happen? Well, it happened last year. So that's what makes this interesting is that uh, it's better to be 2-0, and but you can win it at 1-1. One and one. Right. And uh, I think this group had that hunger because they were eliminated last year and they wanted to get back for their, their third go around. So they, they were able to do that. And yet along the way, they had so many injuries. I mean, they you know, you had Austin Langworthy had a, a broken hammock bone that missed time early. And then on April the 11th, Mike Rivera breaks a hammock bone at FSU and missed 22 games. Uh, jo- Jonathan India had the elbow injury where he, mm-hmm. he couldn't play defensively for uh, 10 games. That was over about a three week period. And Dalton Guthrie looked like he broke his ankle in the last weekend series against Kentucky when he was running to first base, turned his ankle, caused him to miss uh, a three game, missed about 10 days. Uh, so they had to battle through those those kinds of injuries. And yet they've, they've had guys step up here and there and, and fill in. And, and this is but this has been a year where it hasn't been so easy for Sully just to write that lineup card down, mm-hmm. you know, never changes. This year, the lineup card was always changing trying to get the different combination of who's going to lead off and uh, who, who bats better in this two hole and oh, who's healthy now. And, you know, all that stuff. It hasn't been some years. You just kind of write it down. It doesn't change much this year. The lineup has changed a lot. So they've had to really piecemeal it together. And that's why I think it's been a great challenge for them, but it also has been great rewarding too. Final baseball question for you. You've been to Omaha so many times. We've talked about that. I'm curious what stories stand out to you, what personal stories, whether it's something that happened when you were trying to find a great steakhouse out there. I mean, you spend a lot of time in Omaha if you get out there and win. So what, what is the, uh, the classic Omaha story that, that comes to you? Well, the number one story uh, in terms of on the field 
was on June 1st of 1996. The Gators are playing Florida State in the opening day of the College World Series. And we're losing the game two to one. And Brad Wilkerson comes up and hits a grand slam home run and then comes off first base, goes to the mound and closes the game and gets the, the victory there. And he did it on his 20th birthday, hmm. June 1 of 1996. He was 20 years old. I'll never forget that. And then uh, to beat Florida State, uh, that, that's similar right. to uh, 52-20 beating FSU for a national championship because we, we beat them uh, there in the College World Series. And uh, we, we, we eliminated FSU in, in 1991. Uh, when Mark Valdez threw, a, I think it was a shutout against FSU and sent them home. So th- those are on-the-field memories. Obviously, in 2005, the year that we would go on and play Texas for the national championship, we lost that series. But uh, the first night out, uh, we played Nebraska in the old Rosenblatt Stadium, and there's 25,000 people there. And I'm, I'm swearing there, there's, there's 24,000 Nebraska fans. All you can see was red. <laughs> I mean, Lincoln's an hour away, so we're playing Nebraska right there in Omaha, and we beat them in a thrilling game. That was one I'll never forget. And then obviously, we had a chance to win both games against South Carolina five, six years ago when we played them for the national finals, and uh, we couldn't finish them off either game, and we lost that heartbreaker. So those are the on-the-field stories that I, I really remember. Uh, there's a great bridge that they have they built there. It's a pedestrian bridge. It goes from uh, almost the edge of TD Ameritrade Park off the downtown area over the Missouri River, and then you're on the other side. You're in Iowa. So I always walk that bridge huh. many times while I'm there. It's, it's a pedestrian bridge. No cars. Just, you, can, you, can, you can take your bike over, but a lot of people just walk in the bridge, spanning the river. So I always, I always do that. And we always, you know, find a steakhouse or two. There's some great steaks in Omaha, as you know. So uh, we've done that. So there's a lot, we've played a lot of golf out there. So there's a lot of things. Because, like I said, if, if you're playing Saturday and then you win, you play Monday and you win. If you're 2-0, you don't play until Friday. Right. Well, in the case of the Gators, they're playing, they're starting on Sunday. If they win Sunday and then win Tuesday, they won't play again until Friday. So there can be some downtime in Omaha, Nebraska. So uh, for a novice that's out there, you can go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? But when you've been out there a number of times, it's also part of the mental process, the mental preparation of knowing that, hey, it can be long, it can be exciting, but you better gear for the long haul, and you better pack enough clean clothes to get you through the fortnight. And you better be ready for uh, for lots of golf and lots of steaks, I guess, is what you're saying, too. <laughs> yeah, there have been some years I've eaten so many steaks, I, I came back home, and I don't think I touched a piece of steak <laughs> for about six months. Don't want any part of that anymore. A um, couple final things for you, just talking about something that came out this week. Uh, the UAA announced their biggest budget ever, including improvements to the LED boards in the stadium, a new scoreboard for the swimming and diving programs, updated graphics, and of course the one that fans are really excited about, the permanent 3D projectors inside the O'Connell Center to recreate what we saw before the Florida-Kentucky game this year. Uh, And that's all obviously part of Scott Strickland's general mission, which is improving the fan experience. And uh, he's been all over the place in his short time as AD. I'm curious your perspective on what he's brought to the program so far. Well, to borrow the old phrase, I, I more or less told him this, that he's the busiest man in showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it was, he, he hit the ground running when he got the job during the football season last fall. You know, his family just moved here from Starkville, so he's great to be reunited with, with the whole family. But for that six- or seven-month period there when he was really here, he was, he was just a man on a mission. And what he has done is phenomenal. He's got great vision. 
he's today's contemporary guy, social media, yep. uh, honed in on that, really has his pulse on what's going on. And like I said, I, I met Scott in like 1994, so I've known him for 23 years, hmm. and I knew what a principled, great guy he is. And uh, just, you know, like a lot of us, I was saddened to hear that Jeremy's uh, retirement was was imminent, was coming quickly. And then when I, a few weeks later, when I heard Scott was in the running and probably going to be the guy, then I thought, wow, we've hit a home run. It's, it's Scott Strickland that can come in here with, you know, his AD experience that he had at, at Mississippi State. And, and they'd been, he'd been around the league. He'd been at Auburn. That's when I first met him was the baseball SID at Auburn. And then I uh, went to Kentucky. And, and then we played in the baseball tournament in Waco, Texas, in the regional in the year 2000. And lo and behold, Scott was there working for Baylor. So I, I, I crossed paths with him so many times over the years. I thought this is a great, great hire for Florida. And, he, and his vision of what we're going to get going here in the future, uh, it's so exciting. And I'm so happy for him because he is one quality guy. And uh, I couldn't be happier for him and for, for us that sure. he's in control here. And I know Jeremy's extremely happy uh, living his life the way he's doing it right now, too. So it, it's worked out for everybody. Final thing for you, Mick, and coming up in the next few weeks, we're going to hear from Jim McElwain, we're going to hear from Steve Spurrier, and they'll shed some light on the upcoming football season, because inevitably that's where the focus will turn very, very shortly. So we're not going to hear from you again until the fall. I'm curious, from where you sit right now, your impressions on Florida football as we look toward 2017? Well, I think it's it's zooming up. Uh, I, I think there's a bright future. And uh, uh, just the other day, I was sitting in my office here, and uh, I brought a young man through, and it was Malik Zaire. Hmm. And so I was able to meet him and talk with him. He's a wonderful young man, and and uh, I had forgotten where he'd grown up. And I said, Malik, I said, well, where did you go to high school? And he said, Archbishop Alter. And I thought, only a guy from Dayton, Ohio would probably know that name, because <laughs> I worked in Dayton, and that's where Archbishop Alter is, right there in Kettering, which is a Dayton suburb. So I said, that's right. I remember you went there. And, of course, I, I told him I lived right near Centerville, Ohio, where uh, it was a great high school program when Kirk Herbstreit was the quarterback, high school oh, wow. quarterback there from huh. Centerville back in the in the 80s. So we had a nice little chat, and I told him I'm rooting for him. So uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get some productive play out of our quarterback position, whoever that might be. We've got a number of guys that are candidates for that job, and hopefully the offense can make a step up because it needs to, obviously, and uh, – you know, we'll continue playing good, solid Florida football defense like we've been doing. we got good kicking game going on. So uh, I think we've got a, a bright future here, too, and I'm excited for it. Obviously, it's a challenge. There's a lot of good coaches in this league. and It's a tough league, tough division. Yeah. Uh, you know, Georgia's loaded up, and uh, I'm sure they're feeling they're ready to go. Tennessee's been knocking on the door, so it ain't going to come easy. Will's got it going on at South Carolina. So it's going to be fun, and like you said, it'll be here before we know it. But uh, – uh, I'll first enjoy the College World Series, yes. and then, you know what, I'll enjoy, as I always say tongue-in-cheek, my favorite season, the offseason. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not a very long one for you, so uh, try and enjoy it. And thank you so much for bringing us your very unique perspective, as always. We look forward to talking again in the fall. Adam, thank you. My pleasure. The term dynasty gets thrown around often in sports, but it would seem to be especially appropriate when describing the Florida men's track and field program. Since 2010, Mike Holloway's team has now won seven national titles between indoor and outdoor competitions following their triumph in Eugene. We spoke to the head coach, affectionately known as Mouse, and asked him why this gutsy team holds a special place in his heart. 
Well, I mean, they're all my teams are special to me, and but this one was more a, a little more special because we had some adversity, we had some injuries. You know, we lost um, you know two very big time recruits last year, and a lot of teams would have fallen apart, but uh, these guys never flinched. You know, they dedicated this season to proving that you know we can still be one of the better teams in the country, and just watching them go about their work every day was was just phenomenal. Three months ago, the team finished second at indoor championships by half a point. How much mm-hmm. did that fuel the drive for this title at the outdoor meet? I mean, we didn't talk about it a lot, to be honest with you. You know, uh, there wasn't any rah-rah speeches or anything like that. We, after the indoor championships, I got them together. I go, guys, look, we're going to be fine. You know, no one died. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we did the best we could. We, they were just better than we were today. So what we have to do is just get, you know, get back to work and just make sure that we're better prepared come outdoor season. But that was the last we talked about it. We never mentioned it again. In a sport where milliseconds make the difference between championships and runners-up, how frustrating can it be, especially for the athletes, to put performances like that in the past and move forward from them? Well, I think it's paramount. I'm, I'm a big guy that, you know, you leave your successes and your failures where they are. If you cure your successes or your failures with you too far in life, they they tend to bog you down. So, and when we leave a championship, the championship's there. You know, people were talking about us defending our title from last year. There's nothing to defend. When you're defending something, you're trying to keep somebody from taking something from you. That title's ours. We were just trying to win this year's championship. So um, there was never any talk about anything other than just let's just let's line up and do the best we can. Let's engage in the party, as we like to say. And there's a computer that does this job and puts up points, and we'll see who has the most once the meet's done. That's a similar sentiment to what I remember Tim Walton said that a lot after softball won a championship in 2014. Everyone said, oh, are you going to defend the title? He said, no, we have nothing to defend. We won that. This is something different. And yet from the outside, people want to put those labels on you and and suggest that you have to defend something. Is it difficult to sort of work within that framework of what the outside thinks relative to the way that you perceive a championship? Not difficult at all. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big media guy. I'm not a big guy that walks around, well, so-and-so said this or so-and-so said that. You know, we concern ourselves with what we do here on a daily basis on our campus, and that's all we can control. It's not like football or basketball where you can fool somebody and, hey, we're a passing team, let's run the ball, mm-hmm. or we're a fast-break team, let's slow the ball down. It's track and field. It's basic, and it's just about you doing and being the best you you can be when it counts the most. Talking about this meet in particular, you guys were in a tough position after Clayton Brown was eliminated from the high jump a little earlier than anticipated, but then Johnny Victor came up huge and put you back in the driver's seat. Can you talk about that performance and what it meant for someone like Johnny who had to battle back from a really serious injury? Well, I think what Johnny's performance did was it kind of lent some credibility to what I always tell him. If you'll just do what you did to get here, you'll be fine. And that's what Johnny did. Johnny jumped 6'11 every meet he went to this year. Every single one. And so he goes to the national meet, he jumps 6'11", and guess what? He's, he's seventh in the country. He's an All-American. And, you know, very pivotal points for us. Um, I, I, there was never a time during the meet that anybody got down. You know, we talk about this before the competition starts. This is an athletics contest. Something's going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. But if one of your teammates is down, then your job is to, hey, pat him on the shoulder. Hey, I got you, man. I'm going to pick you up. And that's kind of what Johnny did with, with Clayton. Clayton was bouncing back before between the long jump and triple jump. You know, I'm going to take the blame for that as a head coach. You know, he and Coach Peterson thought they could do that, and it didn't work. So in the future, we'll have to make a better decision there. But, you know, just kudos to Johnny for picking his teammate up and and scoring some points, big points for us. And the whole concept of, you know, teammates helping each other out, it's interesting in your sport because there's such an individual nature to it. 
but yet it is still a, a team title that you're fighting for. So can you kind of touch on that dynamic and how you keep everybody focused on one goal when they are doing such individual tasks? Well, you know, we, we don't talk about this being an individual sport. Do everything we do, we talk about the team, we talk about the program, we talk about, you know, who we are and how we conduct our business. So when they're out there on the, you know, in doing their individual events, so to speak, they know that they're performing not only for themselves, but for the team. We're very unselfish. We think about what's for the greater good of the program as a whole when we're out there performing. As far as individual performances go, you've also got some big ones from Grant Hallway and Keandre Bates, and they've been breaking records, turning heads all season. What makes them such unique talents and the contributions that they've made for you? Well, you know, I think you, you talk about those two guys as well as Eric Fletcher. That's where the bulk of our points came from. And, you know, those three guys are all obviously very talented individuals, but they're also guys who work hard at mastering their crafts. And that's what track and field is all about. We've all heard the old adage, practice makes perfect. Well, we talk about practice making permanent. And so the way we practice is the way we're going to compete. So our practices are intense. You know, we demand focus. We demand that, you know, we pay attention to detail. And that's what you see out of those guys at the championship meets. And so that's what makes those guys special. You know, Eric knew all year long that the goal was for him to be at his absolute best at these championships. So when he lost the conference meet, wasn't a big deal. You know, when he lost in the semifinal, wasn't a big deal because we knew the goal was to be the national champion. Speaking of Eric Futch, he's been described as the vocal leader of your team, and he really dug deep defending his title in the 400 hurdles. Can you talk about his importance to the team and that role he plays and the struggles he had to endure on and off the track to get to this point? Well, I think the thing with Eric is, you know, when Eric got here, he had a little bit of a trust factor. You know, he just uh, he wasn't a very trusting soul. So I had to kind of strip him down and help him understand that, hey, I'm here to help you. I'm here to make you better. I see a special talent in you. And I need you to help me cultivate that talent. And I would say about um, halfway through the fall of his junior year, he finally started to believe. And what you've seen over the last two seasons, this is a byproduct of him trusting me. You know, he trusts my assistant coach, you know, Coach Mann, who helps me a lot with Eric. And, you know, so that's what it was, him trusting me, trusting Coach Mann, and more importantly, trusting himself. Once he started to really believe that he could be one of the world's best, then things start coming together for him. And how important has his leadership been for the, the team as well? I mean, it's, it's, it's huge because, you know, he's the guy that, you know, we have somebody go down and he's the one that stands up, okay, hey, next man up. You know, at the beginning of the year when we, we were talking about a four-by-one and we thought we might be one leg short, he stepped and goes, Coach, if you need me, I'm on there. And he's run a great third leg for us all year long. So not only is he a, a spiritual and emotional and a vocal leader, he leads by example. So, you know, he's kind of the guy that, you know, he talks to talk, but he walks to walk to back it up. You talked a few minutes ago about the difference between the insider, the way you guys perceive things, and the way that outsiders may look at it. I remember watching the meet and watching the very end of it, going into the 4x400, everybody knew on the outside that you needed a fifth place finish or better to win the title. Is that something that guys competing are aware of? Do you talk about where they need to finish, or is it just run the best race you can and, and see what happens? No, you know, they, we, we made them aware of it because we knew that if we, even if we didn't, the, the announcer was going to talk about it as soon as they got on the track. So there was no, <laughs> there was no getting around it. And, you know, they can add, they're, they're all very smart guys, so they can figure it out. So, you know, we told them what they needed to do. But then the last thing we said was, but let's not run for fifth, let's run to win. Because if, you, if you're running for fifth place, you end up sixth. Mm -hmm. And so we, they ran to, you know, to win and they ran to go you know, to the best of their abilities and we end up fourth place and we're the national champions. And talk about that moment. I mean, you've celebrated that so many times with teams. I mean, when, when they cross the finish line and you realize you had up all the points and you know you're where you want to be, what is that feeling like for you, your staff, and, and your, your team? I mean, it's a great feeling because, you know, it's nine months of work. 
that comes down to three minutes. And But it's just a phenomenal feeling to watch a group of young men, all their hard work, all their dedication come together. And the biggest moment for me is watching them together in the infield afterwards. You know, they're a brotherhood, mm-hmm. they're a family, and you know, we're a family, I should say. And that's the best part of it right there. The looks on their faces, listen to them talk to each other, celebrate together. That's the most fun for me. That, that's just that's a great feeling. You've talked a lot about the concept of family and why that's so critical to this team. And, and you hear that word get thrown around a lot in sports, but why is that so appropriate for this particular squad? Well, it's appropriate for our program as a whole because, as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of talk about track being an individual sport. And in order for us to be a team and to be a unit, we have to be a family because if not, we become fragmented, we become a group of individuals, and then you got a guy on the line that, well, it's just about me, and if I don't do well, who cares? But when we're doing it for each other, when we're doing it as a family, we're doing it as a unit, then we're always fighting for our brothers, and that's the way we look at it. There's been a lot of talk about your program being a dynasty now, seven national titles since 2010. How do you feel when you hear that, and what's the key to developing such consistent excellence? Well, when I hear that, I laugh. Um, (laughs) I guess it's a good thing that people will perceive us that way, but, you know, it's not about being a dynasty. You know, honestly, if you ask me, I'm doing my job. This is what I was hired to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that the key to the whole thing is just, you know, consistent recruiting, you know, consistent coaching, consistent, you know, We've all spent a lot of time this week self-evaluating, you know, sharing notes, sharing thoughts on how we can get better, um, you know, not resting on our laurels. And, you know, we're not we're not going to spend two days, let alone two weeks or two months talking about a championship that was won last week. That championship's over. So mm-hmm. what we've got to do now is prepare to be put ourselves in this same position a year from now. That's the whole key. If we can turn our attention to the women's side, the big story out of that meet was Kyra Jefferson breaking a nearly 30-year-old record in the 200-meter can you explain the significance of that performance and the work that it took to get her to that point? Well, I think anytime you break a, a collegiate record at all, it's a significant um, accomplishment. But then when you talk about one that was almost 30 years old, that makes you kind of go, wow. You know, mm-hmm. and Kyra has been through a lot. But if you watch her progression, she's gotten a little bit better each year. People tend to think that last year was a bad year for her, but she was still the NCAA runner-up last year indoors. She was the SEC champion. She ran 11, 17, and 100 last year. You know, just her hamstrings failed her. And so we got those taken care of. We were a lot more patient this year. The goal was to be the NCAA champion. And, you know, wow, what a phenomenal performance by a phenomenal young lady. So now this season's over for both teams. What does the future look like for the men's team and for the women's? I think the future is very bright. We've got great recruiting classes coming in on both sides. I think the key for us as coaches is to remain humble, keep coaching hard, to keep paying attention to detail, to keep trying to find ways to get better. And then obviously we have to keep recruiting because no matter how good we think we are as coaches, we're not very good if we don't have great athletes to coach. Now, last year, there's a lot of talk around this time about the Olympics. That was the focus, but it's not Olympic year now. And yet there's still a lot of important competitions coming up, including the USA Championships. Can you tell us about some of your current and former athletes that are going to be competing there? Yeah, you know, you got all the guys from this year, you know, Eric and TJ and Kyra and, you know, that whole crew. And then you got, you know, Armand Hall be there. And then you got the four-headed monsters. That's our alumni jump crew of Christian, Will, Omar, and, and Marquise. And Karan Clement will be there in the 400 hurdles. And you know, Robin Reynolds. This just goes on and on and on. So there'll be a lot of Gators out in Sacramento. And, I mean, we'll be out there. You know, we're still a family. We're still a unit. And, you know, whether you're a current Gator or you're an alumni Gator, because I don't think there's any such thing as a former Gator. Mm-hmm. And once you're a Gator, you're always a Gator. Um, all the alumni Gators and all the current Gators will be out there and we'll be supporting each other. It's like the family that we are. 
Well, Coach Holloway, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations again on the national championship, and good luck, as you said, preparing for the next one. Thank you very much, my man. I appreciate you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Make sure to check out Gator Baseball as they begin their run in Omaha against TCU on Sunday night at 7 on ESPN2 and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back next week as we'll recap all the action from the College World Series and much more. Until then, I'm Adam Schiff, and I'll see you in Omaha. Omaha.